I thought, you know, what happens if I die? Uh, what happens if I have another heart attack? And uh, I leave her behind and she doesn't have any guidance or direction. And so I thought, well, the way around that is to try to write her a letter, anticipate some of the issues that she's going to be challenged by. How do you learn to surf a technological tsunami and dance with machines? What are the skill sets that are going to be mo most important for human beings over the next 10 to 20 years? But NFTs don't have to be art. NFTs, I could sell you an NFT that entitles you to my home. I could, I could mint my home on an NFT. Are you feeling stuck, lost, tired, or uninspired? We've all been there, including myself. I'm Coach Des, mindset motivator and lifestyle entrepreneur. I'm here to tell you that the best, unapologetic, and limitless version of yourself is yet to come. The Born Unbreakable podcast is here to inspire just that. With motivating guests from all different walks of life and around the world, their stories will empower you to unlock abundance and your unbreakable spirit. Do you need accountability? Reach out to me for a free consultation of how I can support you in reaching your maximum potential. Welcome to the Born Unbreakable podcast. We are here in almost to the end of September, really. There's only a few weeks left, and so I'm excited to go into more of the fall season because myself and my guest, who I'm going to introduce in just a minute, um, live in Las Vegas, Nevada, where it's really hot. So <laughs> I appreciate when, you know, the weather changes a little bit. Um, so I, I welcome that, that new, the newness of a, of a new season coming off of a very hot uh, desert summer. So today with me, you're in for a really delightful treat. I have George Chanos, who is Nevada's 31st Attorney General, who he was a few years back, which I think is just the coolest thing, because as I studied George, one of the things that he did during his reign at the time when he was an Attorney General for our lovely state of Nevada, he actually argued a case all the way to the United States um, Supreme Court, uh, which is Wharton v. Bokting. And uh, we, we don't need to get into all the details of that, but if you look it up, which I actually studied, it, it, it is a really cool, um, interesting case. But today, what he does in today's life is he's an author, he's a speaker, and he's a business consultant. He sits on numerous boards, and I love the books that he's written, which he'll talk a little bit more about, but the inspiration from one of his recent books called The Millennial Samurai was actually inspired from his daughter, Alexandra, and his nephew, David. Um, it's really about the mindset for the 21st century. So I, I, I really believe that anyone listening can get a lot of gold from the things that, that George has to say in that space. Um, his first book was called Seize Your Destiny, A Roadmap to Success. And um, it, the catalyst for that was actually an experience that he had um, of a heart attack. So that, that's, that's a little crazy, but I'm sure that um, people can, can relate to, you know, going through something kind of traumatic and wanting, you know, really reflecting on what to be giving back to the world as you're working on leaving your legacy. So George, welcome to the show. Thank you for taking the time to be here. Well, thank you, Des. It's great to be here. 
Awesome. Well, I, I want to start because, you know, there's there's so many different things to get into. I'd love to just hear more about your background. So I know we know the current state and you spent time as the attorney general at one point, but let's go maybe a further back than that where, you know, what was your inspiration for having this uh, such a strong mindset for having an entrepreneurial spirit, pursuing something as rigorous as the career that you chose, you know, was tell us a little bit more about your upbringing. Okay. Well, I had a, um, I had a kind of curious background um, in that my, um, my parents got divorced when I was one year old. So um, I didn't really have that normal uh, two-parent, uh, you know, environment where you grow up in a home and, you know, the mom and the dad are both there. Instead, I had two homes uh, in different parts of the country. And I would shuttle back and forth between my mom and my dad. And I also had two very different parents. Um, my dad was a traditional Greek. He was um, very grounded, very... Um, just a kind of a salt of the earth type of guy, um, but not ambitious, uh, not a, uh, a businessman, uh, really. He, um, uh, his, his father immigrated from Greece and um, opened up a dry cleaner that the uh, sons worked at. He started out shining shoes and ultimately you know, opened up a dry cleaner. And uh, his three sons, one of which was my dad, worked with him. And um, then my dad went on to work for a company related to the industry um, in sales. And uh, one of the other brothers uh, became uh, part of the management at that company. And then uh, the third brother ended up opening up another dry cleaner. Um, in any case, they all grew up during the Depression and uh, their family was, you know, not well off at all. And um, so they, you know, they struggled and they went through hardship. And so um, my dad, uh, you know, kind of tried to teach those values to us. Um, I didn't get an allowance. So very, at a very young age, I was uh, very um, entrepreneurial. I would shovel snow, I would uh, cut grass, I would walk dogs, I would do whatever I needed to do since I was 10 years old to try to make some money. And um, so I was entrepreneurial from the very beginning. Um, ultimately, um, you know, there are a number of things that impact our lives that, uh, that lead us in the various directions that we go in. The Kennedy assassination was a big thing for me. I was six years old at the time, but it had a big impression on me, made me want to go into politics. And um, I knew that uh, most politicians, most presidents were lawyers. And so I decided I needed to become a lawyer. And um, I went down that path, ultimately worked in Washington, D.C. as an intern when I was 20, after serving as student body president at, at uh, the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. I was invited back by Senator Laxalt to work in Washington. Uh, that was a fascinating uh, uh, opportunity. It was during ABSCAM, and um, I had uh, uh, another epiphany moment when the ABSCAM co-conspirators uh, entered an elevator that I was in and uh, wrote it down to resign in disgrace in front of an international press corps. And I decided I didn't want to be one of these guys, so how do I avoid that and still you know, participate in politics? And that led me to conclude that I needed to go out and make money. 
and so um, after finishing law school, I, I joined um, one of the world's largest law firms and um, uh, learned how to practice law and then opened up my own law firm, built a practice and ultimately was tapped by the governor of the state of Nevada to serve as Nevada's attorney general. Um, I shut down my law practice and I did that and um, got to argue before the U.S. Supreme Court, um, won successfully 9-0 and, um, you know, had an amazing uh, stint as Nevada's attorney general. But I found that politics was not for me. I felt that it was very dysfunctional, very toxic. Um, and I was a moderate. I was a political moderate where I believed uh, fundamentally that in a country of 325 million people that um, no one is going, that are equally divided. At no time have we been more divided than since the Civil War, according to researchers um, who have looked at that issue. Um, and that country that is equally divided of that many people uh, is not going to be led by someone on the left or by someone on the right. It's ultimately going to be, it's going to have to be led by someone from the middle. Historically, we've had a pendulum that has swung back and forth between competing parties. We'd have Democrats in for a period of years, then we'd have Republicans in for a period of years. Um, and that shifting pendulum um, is what has maintained the equilibrium in the United States. Ruth Bader Ginsburg talks about this. You can find a video of her talking about the pendulum on YouTube. And she says that the symbol of America should be, shouldn't be the bald eagle, it should be the pendulum, because uh, that pendulum has maintained the equilibrium. If that pendulum breaks where uh, one side uh, remains in power and the other side doesn't have uh, a chance at power, then um, that could create a real problem, um, because then you would have a very large section of the country that's unrepresented. So essentially, my background is I'm a complex problem solver. I, uh, um, I've been, you know, that's how I've made a living for the past 30 years. People have sought me out to help them solve their problems. And um, they, the problems have ranged from all spectrums uh, of industry and, and people and personalities and types of problems. And so um, I've become what's known as a broad learner as opposed to a deep learner. A deep learner is someone who spends their life doing one thing and learns a great deal about that one thing. They become an, uh, a subject matter expert in that, in that one thing. And um, some might think I'm, I'm a subject matter expert in the law because I've you know, managed the state's largest law firm and argued before the Supreme Court, but the, the truth is that there are many lawyers that are much more knowledgeable about the law than I am. Um, I'm, I consider myself a broad learner. I, I know just enough about a lot of different things that it gives me a unique perspective and an ability to solve problems because I'm able to draw from all that knowledge in all those different diverse areas and use it, uh, form a helicopter perspective of a problem see it from all angles, and then arrive at creative solutions to that problem. Um, creativity plays a large part in that. Um, I'm also an artist. I, I paint, I do sculptural assemblage, I make jewelry, I, um, I create NFTs. So uh, creativity is, uh, is a huge part of, of what I use to solve problems. It allows you to generate options 
create options to um, finding a path forward. And um, so that's what I've been doing for the last 30 years. And today um, I'm, uh, um, I'm at a point in my life where I'm more focused on legacy. I'm more focused on giving back. And so I'm looking at bigger problems. I'm looking, instead of trying to solve problems on behalf of high net worth individuals, um, which is a lot of what I've done in the past, um, what I'm doing today is I'm trying to uh, look at bigger problems that are facing the country, that are facing the world, um, things like Taiwan, things like Ukraine, uh, things like global warming, gun control, uh, racism, uh, division, um, technology. These are the areas that interest me today and these are the areas that I'm studying and I'm writing about and I'm speaking about and um, trying to add value to uh, society by teaching what it is that I know about how to solve problems and how to um, succeed in life and overcome challenges and lead a, a happier, more productive, more meaningful life. So I'm hoping in, the, in, in these last years of my life to impart whatever I can to other people so that they can have better that's that's the journey that I'm on today. Yeah, it's it's incredible. I love hearing your story and I resonate so much with it. I was a political science major myself and the majority of my friends went to law school and I became a consultant. So I guess we we meet together and maybe some yeah. studies, but in kind of the nature of what we do today. And um, I do that in business and predominantly the healthcare sector. Um, so it's a, it's a very fascinating uh, kind of stuff. But um, I think being a generalist is it, it, it you have the ability to touch more people. Right. And I, I think that's what why I get excited about it, too. Although I need lots of subject matter expertise in my life for different reasons. I think anybody listening can appreciate, the, um, you know, the dedication that you've put in, especially being a person of contribution and service. You know, I think I think when we arrive to that place where that is a part of the core mission, you know, that and th that makes the world already a better place because of all, all of the things that you've just described. There's enough complexity. There's enough challenge. There's enough divisiveness that if more people were thinking about contribution, you know, the the way that we connect and collaborate could look a little different. But I, I want to go to first. um you know, your books, because I, I, I really love the inspiration behind them. So I understand that when you wrote your first book, that you, you did experience something, you know, I would imagine is pretty scary, suffering from, an, from a heart attack. So um, take, take me to that time. What, you know, how did, sure. how did that, that unfold? And then what, what made you go, okay, now I'm going to write a book and help people. <laughs> sure. So, um, in 2012, I had a heart attack and it was a, it was a massive heart attack. Um, I had, um, 99% closure in a main artery and, um, I was at the emergency room and, uh, I told them that I thought I was going to have a heart attack and they took me back immediately. And, um, uh, and uh, um, they hooked me up to an EKG, and uh, the you know the uh, uh, I guess the alarm started going off, and 
all of a sudden eight people were in the room and the doctor was saying, I need morphine stat. And uh, I said, I think I'm going to have a heart attack. And he said, you're having a massive heart attack right now. He said, we've called the cardiac surgeon. They're on their way. And um, we're going to try to put a few stints in there. We can put in two uh, maximum. And if that doesn't work, then uh, we'll have to you know, take it to the next level. But we'll get to that if we need to. And they took me up and uh, they uh, put the stints in and um, it solved the problem. And um, I was in intensive care for about four days. And uh, it was a shock. You know, it came as a completely anticipated event. Uh, it turns out it was high blood pressure. And once I got the high blood pressure under control, um, I was fine. Um, but it took, you know, a period of time to recover. And at the time, I had a 15-year-old daughter. My daughter uh, was uh, 15 uh, in 2012. She's 25 now. And um, I thought, you know, what happens if I die? Uh, what happens if I have another heart attack? And uh, I leave her behind, and she doesn't have any guidance or direction. And so I thought, well, the way around that is to try to write her a letter, anticipate some of the issues that she's going to be challenged by, and some of the questions that she might have and try to address those in this letter before uh, something else happens to me and uh, leave her the letter. And so I began writing the letter on my laptop and I just kept thinking of issues that I wanted to talk to her about and thinking of issues that I felt she needed to know about. And um, so the letter became very long. And after it reached over 100 pages, I started looking at it and thinking, you know, geez, this is long. Uh, this is like a book. And then I thought, you know, hey, great, I'll just make it into a book and I'll leave it not only for my daughter, but I'll leave it for other young people who can profit from it and who it can help. And so that became Seize Your Destiny, A Roadmap to Success. And once I finished that, I realized that, number one, I, I had enjoyed the process of getting my thoughts out on paper. Um, I felt uh, that I had left something important behind. And I felt that uh, my daughter would be better off as a consequence. And then I realized, uh, I started thinking about, well, you know, have I said everything that needs to be said? And as I asked myself that question, I realized that, you know, really what I had done was I had talked about how to navigate the past 30 years, which was the period that I had uh, lived in as a professional. And... Um, and I downloaded what I knew about that 30-year period and what I knew about succeeding in that environment. And uh, I realized that the world that my daughter was going to live in was a very different environment. It would unfold over the next 30 years. It would be very different than the, the prior 30 years. And that I knew nothing about that future. I knew nothing about the next 30 years. And so I wasn't in a position to advise anyone on the next 30 years, really. And so I decided that I needed to change that in order to advise my daughter on the next 30 years. I needed to do research. And so for the next five years, I basically uh, spent researching the future. And then I came out with a, um, a second book in 2019, and that was called Millennial Samurai, A Mindset for the 21st Century. And Millennial Samurai is, is me taking a look at the next 30 years as a, you know, uh, professional researcher and analyst and problem solver. 
and looking at the next 30 years, seeing what's going to happen, and trying to devise a strategy that people can use to survive and thrive in that environment. So Millennial Samurai, a mindset for the 21st century, is essentially a guidebook on how to survive and thrive over the next 30 years. And it's not just for millennials. It's not just for young people. It's for anyone. It's for people in transition. It's people starting new careers. It's people that are, you know, in middle life and, and uh, don't know what to do with themselves. It's young people who uh, are confused about the future and don't know what it's going to be like and uh, don't know what to do next. And so it's advice for all of those people. The way I analogize it is that if I were to drop you off in the Amazon rainforest and I were going to give you a duffel bag filled with provisions, um, there are obvious things that you would put in that duffel bag, right? You would put uh, something uh, to start fires. You would put uh, something to, uh, to cut, whether it's a knife or an axe or a saw or all three. Um, you would put some kind of rope or twine. Uh, you know, there are a number of things that, are, uh, that would go into that duffel bag, water. Um, and uh, so Millennial Samurai, this book is a duffel bag for the 21st century. It's essentially, um, if I were going to drop someone off on the sidewalk in the middle of the 21st century, I would give them that book. And um, of all the things that I will leave my daughter, of which there are many, um, the one thing that I would uh, consider most valuable that I'm leaving her is the book. Because without the book, um, she can waste through um, all the other assets and uh, use them imprudently or lose them. But with the book, she can create her own wealth and she can create her own uh, success and she can create her own happiness. And, um, and she can protect the other assets that she's given. And so um, it's really the most valuable thing that, that uh, I think I'm going to leave my daughter. And so uh, for any parent who happens to be listening, this is something that uh, you really want for your children and you want for yourself. Um, you can go on Amazon.com and you can read the reviews. Um, they're all five-star reviews and they're pretty incredible. Um, or you can, if you can't afford the book, it's $29. And if for some reason that's too much money for you, uh, you can go to MillennialSamurai.com and you can download the entire digital copy of the book for free. Um, the problem with a download, a digital download, is that you're going to have to read it on your computer because to print it out is going to cost you $50. Um, it's 444 pages. Um, so it's cheaper to buy it than print it out. Um, but if you're willing to read it on your computer, you can read it on your computer. If you want to make sure that it's something that you want, then go to MillennialSamurai.com, download it, read it on your computer, and then if you want a hard copy, go ahead and invest the $29 and buy it. The reason that uh, um, we need to sell it is, first of all, there's a cost of production, and secondly, for every book that we sell, we give away a free book. So, um, you know, that's basically the goal is to get this in his in, into as many hands as possible, to as many people as possible. Um, over 13,000 people have downloaded the book already for free, um, and many more have bought it. And um, that's, uh, you know, that's what Millennial Samurai is all about. It's broken down, um, I should point out, because it sounds daunting when you say 444 <laughs> pages. It sounds, sounds like a big deal, sounds like a big read. 
Um, but you need to understand that it's, it's broken down into bite-sized pieces. So the chapters are only one to three pages each. So each chapter, and you can bounce around throughout the book, you can look for chapters that you're interested in, and you can read those chapters. There are 182 chapters that are only one to three pages each. So it's the perfect book when you've got five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, you're sitting at the airport, you're sitting in a dentist office or a doctor's office, uh, you're sitting at home watching TV and you just wanna take a five minute break and read a chapter. Uh, you wake up in the morning and you have five minutes at the beginning of your day and you wanna read a chapter, you're going to bed, you've got five or 10 minutes before you fall asleep, you wanna read a couple of chapters. Um, it's that easy to read and uh, you don't have to start at the beginning and you don't have to you know, finish at the end. You, could, you can jump around and, and read it however you'd like. And um, uh, I had a 14 year old who read the entire book cover to cover in one sitting. They woke up in the morning, uh, became so fascinated with the book that uh, they began reading it and they wouldn't go to bed until they finished it. And so they, they read late into the evening and, and finished the book. Um, it, it's like Lay's potato chips. Once you read one chapter, <laughs> you know, seriously, it's, it's, it's once you read one chapter, what's going to happen is you're going to go through a cost-benefit analysis. Your mind is going to go through a cost-benefit analysis and you're going to say to yourself, geez, I just spent, you know, two or three minutes reading this chapter and, and I got a lot out of it. I got, you know, way more than the two or three minutes uh, was worth. And so the value proposition is very much there. And yeah. that causes you to go on to the next chapter and keep reading the next chapter because every time the payoff is, is more than the investment. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, that's what Millennial Samurai is all about. I, I love it. So just be careful maybe not to be eating the Lay's potato chips the whole time if you are <laughs> there like the 14-year-old did from cover to cover. You know, we, we're very easy to sit and watch, let's say, a Netflix series for hours and hours. So I think it's probably a, an even better investment to sit and read your book for hours and hours, especially with such valuable information. And I'm curious, because you've gotten such great feedback, you know, what, what's one of the most common themes of feedback that you get of the value that people say? Is there like a specific topic or is there like a thematic, you know, gusto that people give you feedback on? Like what, what are you hearing from those that are reading? You, you know, the, the, the best, the best uh, um, I guess, uh, critic or critique or critic, uh, criticism or, or applause for the book um, is really found at Amazon.com. If you, if you go to Amazon and you look up Millennial Samurai and you read the reviews, um, there have to be about 40 or more reviews and they're all five-star reviews. And so just read what those people are saying about the book. Some have called it a secular Bible for the 21st century. Others have called it a masterpiece. Others have said the book should be in every home in America. Um, the, the reviews are really extraordinary. Um, it's, you know, basically people are saying that these are the things people need to know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the book, the book talks about, um, well, I'll just read you some of the chapters, what the titles of some of the chapters. You can go to the table of contents and you can see very quickly 
why it's an important book for you to read. But critical thinking, controlling your thoughts, setting clear intentions, believing in yourself, thinking for yourself, opening your mind, the power of intuition, seeking the truth, attitude, empathy, gratitude, optimism, hope, passion, um, you know, character, uh, courage, commitment, compassion, authenticity, choice, curiosity, collaboration, adaptation. These are all the types of subjects that are covered in the book. And these are the subjects that people need to know about. You know, what do you need to know about adaptation? We're living in the most radically and rapidly changing period in human history. You know, you clearly need to know about adaptation. Um, Darwin talked about uh, survival of the fittest, and he said it's not the most intelligent or the strongest that survive. It's those most capable of adaptation. So you need to, you need to read about these things. You need to, you need to learn about these things. Um, you need to learn about resilience. You need to learn about anti-fragility. Um, you need to learn about character. You need to learn about courage. Um, uh, you need to learn about fear and overcoming your fears. Um, you know, you need to learn about resilience. Um, these are these are the subjects that um, that are most relevant to the time that we live in. Um, they have also been relevant um, in in you know the millennial past um, in in the centuries since since man has been roaming the planet in caves. Um, some of these issues have been the ancient core values that have allowed us to succeed. Um, you know, collaboration, for example, um, empathy. Um, someone, uh, uh, one of the executives over at Oracle, I forget her name, um, recently said that empathy may be the 21st century skill. Um, so, you know, there are reasons for that. Uh, the world is changing very rapidly and radically. Automation and technology are going to redefine what it means to be human. And, um, you know, these are, uh, these are all, these changes are coming far more quickly than anyone realizes. And Millennial Samurai uh, makes you understand that. It talks about the technological revolution. It talks about the technological tsunami on the immediate horizon. Um, you know, we're in a race for uh, um, uh, artificial intelligence supremacy, quantum supremacy, um, and uh, with China. And, um, you know, Putin in 2017 said that he who controls artificial intelligence will control the world. And Ray Kurzweil of Google, the head of AI for Google, tells us that the singularity, the moment in time when machine intelligence will replace, will eclipse human intelligence, uh, could come as early as 2029. Um, there's a recent study headed up by Eric Schmidt of Google, a former CEO and, and uh, uh, executive chairman of Google, uh, on technology that uh, just released a 186-page report last week uh, that tells us that we are in this incredible competition with China that will decide the world that we live in over the next decade, over the next 10 years. Technology will redefine the world that we live in and redefine who the global leader is, whether it's China, whether it's the United States, um, or whether it's you know Japan or uh, another country that comes up with uh, um, a leap in technology that, uh, that eclipses everyone else. Um, but most likely it'll be China or, J or the United States. 
Um, today, the world's fastest computer is the Frontier. It, uh, it's a U.S. computer that calculates at one quintillion calculations per second. Um, China um, may have a computer that's even faster, that has not been announced, um, or you know, may soon come out with one that eclipses the Frontier. So they've been leapfrogging one another. Um, several years ago, China had the Sunway Tau light that calculated at 124 petaflops per second, which is 124 quadrillion calculations per second. Now we have one quintillion calculations per second. Next, we'll have a computer that calculates at double that. And um, the, the race will continue until that computing power um, becomes so great um, and the data aggregation that it consumes becomes so voluminous that that computing uh, entity uh, becomes more intelligent than the human brain. And once that happens and it becomes self-learning, then that technology will, will multiply at, a, um, at an incredible rate of speed, where Kurzweil tells us that um, although in 2029 uh, computer intelligence is said to exceed human intelligence, he says that by the 2040s, which is only 20 years away, artificial intelligence will not be our equal. It will be a billion times, a billion times more capable than human intelligence. So we're talking about massive, massive change in the next 10 years, and we're talking about a level of change that is beyond our ability to even comprehend over the next 20 to 30 years. So how do you survive and thrive in that rapidly and radically changing environment? How do you learn to surf a technological tsunami and dance with machines? What are the skill sets that are going to be mo most important for human beings over the next 10 to 20 years? What should you be teaching your children? What should you be learning? What degrees should you be obtaining? You know, what skill sets do you need to acquire? All of this is covered in Millennial Samurai. Yeah, I, th I think it's incredible. And, you know, there's uh, being a futurist, I think, is one of the most fascinating things that you can do because people are, are looking ahead and wanting to make the decisions that are going to create a fulfilling future for them and their future families. So one of the big questions that I have for you is around the impact on the very reason that you've done a lot of the work that you've done, which is the impact on your daughter. So what, what has, has she said about the work you're doing and what are some of the things that she's doing today as a result of, you know, you putting so much effort, attention into um, obviously your relationship, but also on being such a positive uh, influence on her life? Well, first of all, she's 25, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so she's like any normal 25-year-old. <laughs> you know, she's not... She's not uh, all that different because of me. She's, she's herself, you know, and uh, she's a lovely young woman. Um, she's got a heart of gold. And, um, you know, like many in her generation, she has different priorities. And so her priorities are not consumerism. She's not out, you know, trying to buy, you know, Gucci handbags. Um, she's, uh, she's working, she's managing a UPS store, um, she's studying and, uh, um, she has a very, um, keen interest in animals. Uh, she has, uh, she has her own home. She, uh, has a couple of dogs and, um, 
she, uh, you know, she goes to work every day managing her UPS and, and she reads and um, she's read my books and she's aware of what's going on. She's more aware than most 25 year olds, uh, far more aware than most 25 year olds. Um, but she's also, you know, got uh, a philosophy of life, uh, which is that she wants to enjoy a simple life. Uh, she's not out to um, set the world on fire and she's not out to change the world. Um, she just wants to live a, a happy and content and peaceful and harmonious life with her, uh, um, her boyfriend and her dogs. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so that, that's what she's doing. No, I, I get it. I mean, we're in, we're in such an environment where, uh, lifestyle, you know, is, is such a diverse topic when it comes to, you know, and arguably even beyond just the generation that we're, we're saying here, the millennials. And, you know, if you look even to the folks that are younger now today, when your daughter, at one point she was 15, you know, I have a niece that's 15 and I have a niece that's 13 and the things they talk about and are dealing with and are prioritizing are different than anything that, you know, I could have related with at that time when I was their age. So you're certainly right about the rapid <laughs> changing environment, the pace and, and the prioritization as, you know, the, the generation sort of unfold right by, right before us. Uh, One of the things that we have to worry about with, with these generations is not their priorities. I mean, their priorities um, may be the right priorities, right? Um, we as baby boomers and the greatest generation, we, uh, we had different priorities. We were essentially builders. And, um, and uh, you know, they, they say that, uh, um, I forget the expression, um, Hard times make strong men, strong men make good times, uh, good times make weak men, and weak men make hard times. Um, so sometimes we're influenced by, um, you know, what we grew up in. My father grew up in the Depression. Uh, yeah. He was clearly very, you know, heavily impacted by that. Um, I grew up in, in, in a booming, you know, I was part of the baby boomer generation. We were the largest generation in history at the time. Um, we were the focus of everyone's attention. Um, and uh, we were the, you know, the promising future. We were the children of the GIs who came back victorious from World War II and had children in record numbers. And uh, those children went on and uh, did some fantastic things. We created the internet, we uh, um, put a man on the moon, we did you know, some amazing things. Um, and uh, we've also you know, uh, uh, failed in certain areas in terms of you know, creating a government that has remained you know, functional and, and optimized. Uh, um, we've you know, pretty much fallen short in that area. Um, we've gotten into a bunch of wars that uh, probably could have been avoided. Uh, we've allowed global warming to occur without properly addressing it um, as early as perhaps we should have. Um, we've allowed hunger um, to exist throughout the world and illiteracy. We've allowed homelessness to flourish. Um, you know, so there's a lot of things that we've dropped the ball on, but there's a lot of things that we've done that have been extraordinarily good. 
Um, millennials um, were actually a larger generation than the baby boomer generation. Um, there were something like 80 million uh, baby boomers and 85 million millennials. And millennials today um, make up the majority, uh, millennials and Gen Z make up the majority of the U.S. workforce today. So they're the new generation that's at the helm. And um, they're leading us into this new uh, period of time which we're going to face, which is a technological tsunami that's going to redefine the world that we live in. Um, automation is going to create massive unemployment. Um, it's also going to create new jobs, but those new jobs are um, probably going to be technical jobs. And we already have over you know, a million technical jobs that are unfulfilled because we don't have people that are trained for those jobs. So, you know, even if this new technology creates new jobs, um, are the people going to be trained for it? You know, we haven't, we haven't uh, made major changes to our educational system since the Industrial Revolution more than 100 years ago. And uh, now we're facing a new revolution, which is the technological revolution, which will dwarf the Industrial Revolution. And so we should have a completely new education system that is uh, created for the technological revolution, but we don't. Instead, we're relying on an antiquated industrial revolution education system. So there are all these issues, um, you know, how the millennials are going to deal with this. And so my feeling is that the best thing that I can do and the best thing that others uh, from my generation can do is that since we're aging out and we're getting older and uh, we're becoming less... Um, uh, able to, you know, uh, take a laboring oar in, in moving the boat forward, um, what we can do is we can be the coxswains, we can guide the boat, we can set the tempo, we can, uh, we can train, we can educate, we can impart our knowledge uh, into these younger um, children of ours and, um, and other people's children, and um, we can mentor and we can guide. Um, like in a wolf pack, in a wolf pack, the, the old wolves lead the pack. Um, it's not the young wolves that are at the front of the line leading the pack, it's the old wolves. Um, because the old wolves know um, how to spot danger because they've seen it more often. And so they're the better guides. And, um, and so, you know, we, we can take a lesson from, from nature. Um, both in that example and many other examples. Um, you know, you look at colonies of ants and colonies of bees, and you look at uh, flocks of sterling and schools of fish. And, um, you know, how do they survive? They survive through collaboration. Um, they don't survive as independence. You don't see sterlings, you know, traversing the world uh, individually. You see them flying in flocks. And there's a reason for that. Because if an eagle were to swoop down, um, your odds of, of living in a flock are much greater than if you were traveling alone. If a sterling were flying alone, it would get eaten. If a, if a fish were traveling alone, it would get eaten. Um, and, if it's, and if it's traveling in a, in, a, in a school of fish or in a flock of sterling, um, it, it increases its odds of survival. Um, fire ants can't swim. Um, in, in torrential rains uh, in South America, they, they would drown. 
And so in order to survive, they lock their legs into uh, and self-assemble into floating rafts. And as floating rafts, they're able to survive. In, independently, they would drown. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, co collaboration is key. And, and so, you know, what, what impairs collaboration is division. And so division, I believe, is our most ex is the greatest existential threat facing the planet today, um, more so than global global warming even, because global warming is is a little more distant. Division is with us today, and um, you know, united we stand and divided we fall. And especially with tensions between the United States and Russia, and tensions between the United States and China over Taiwan. Um, this is not a time for America to be divided. This is a time for America to come together and to be united and to recognize our profound interdependence with one another and to take a clue from nature and recognize that we have great power um, in, in unity. Um, individuals often look at, at government and think, you know, I'm powerless to change things. Well, as an individual, you may be powerless to change things, but together, as a united population, you have tremendous power and can change virtually anything. So what limits your power, what limits your ability to, um, to take the country where it needs to go is, div is division. So we need to overcome that division. Um, these are all things that I talk about in, in Millennial Samurai. You also you know, have to get to the root causes of division. Why are we divided? Why do we see the world differently? And um, why do we have problems communicating and processing information? And you know, what's going on with our brains? And so you know, part of what you need to, to uh, understand to survive and thrive is how the human brain works. You need to understand concepts like cognitive dissonance. Um, motivated reasoning, confirmation bias, tribalism, groupthink. Um, these are all phenomena that impact the way the brain works. And so if you understand how the brain works, you have a better understanding of why we are divided and how we can prevent that division. Again, all of these concepts, that's why Millennial Samurai has so many chapters, because it has a chapter on unmotivated reasoning. It has a chapter on cognitive dissonance. It has a chapter on confirmation bias. And it has a chapter on tribalism and groupthink and, and setting clear intentions and um, critical thinking. And so, you know, with, with, with devoting only one to two minutes, reading one of those one to two, one to, one to three page chapters, you can learn about each of those subjects. You can understand how your brain works and how other people's brains work. You can understand the causes of division and the solutions to division. Um, and you can understand the challenges that are in front of you and how to address them. So this is my background as a complex problem solver coming out and basically saying, this is how I would solve this problem. And this is how you can address these problems and solve them for yourself. Yeah, I think I think it's incredible. And I, I think people are going to continue to, you know, soak in this knowledge that you have, because we are in a day and age where decision making 
is daunting. It's challenging trying to weigh all the various factors that you're talking about because there's just there's more to consider. And, um, you know, we, we have a global marketplace that is unlike we've ever had before. So the need for exactly what you're talking about, like collaboration, is a requirement to make this global marketplace thrive. But I'm curious, because of this other work that you're doing, um, and I know it's it's fun for you, but I do think it's a different contribution. And it's, I would say, modern day times is your NFTs. So I know people reign is something that you you do. And there might be people listening right now going, what even is an NFT? Um, and so I'm going to let you describe that. But you can look up non-fungible sure. token and, and read yeah. more about that. But I do think it, it might be interesting for people to hear a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah, well, that's a great that's a great question. Um, so, um, and why am I involved in NFTs? Um, yes. You know, some people think that they're frivolous, and some people think that they're you know a fad. Um, I have a cousin who's very very successful. Um, he's uh, much more well known than I am. Uh, he's one year older than me. He was my best man. I was his best man. Our fathers were brothers, and. Um, uh, he says NFTs are a speculative bubble and a fad. Um, he's also also happens to be a billionaire, so he's very very successful. He says NFTs are a speculative bubble and a fad. And my response is, you know, you're half right. They are in fact a speculative bubble, but they are not a fad. And let me explain why. So first of all, what is an NFT? An NFT is a non fungible token. A non fungible token means that. It is, uh, each token is unique, it's, it's non-fungible, it's different than every other token. So a Bitcoin token, for example, is a fungible. One Bitcoin token is, is identical to another Bitcoin token. Doesn't matter which one you own, they're both worth the same amount of money, they're both going to be received by other people just as readily. People won't care if you sell them one Bitcoin or another Bitcoin. Um, but a, but a, an NFT is different. An NFT is a token with a smart contract attached to it. And that smart contract is minted with the token on the blockchain, on this distributed ledger. Um, and the, uh, the smart contract uh, describes what it is that the holder of the token is entitled to. So today, artists are the, are the first movers in this space, the, first, the early adopters. And so what they're doing is they're selling NFTs as art. But NFTs don't have to be art. NFTs, I could sell you an NFT that entitles you to my home. I could, I could mint my home on an NFT. And I could just put in the smart contract that the bearer of this token is entitled to my home. And so if you bought the token, you would get the title, the deed to my home. And, um, and what's, what's powerful about that is that I can also put into that smart contract a residual. And I can say that uh, I'm selling you my home for a million dollars. But when you turn around and you sell my home, you sell the home that you now own, you bought it from me. When you sell it to the third buyer or the next buyer, that... Um, I get a residual. I get a 1% or 2% commission on that sale from you to the subsequent buyer. And when the subsequent buyer buys it and he sells it to another buyer, I get a residual, the same residual of 1% to 2% from that sale. And I continue to get that residual in perpetuity for as long as the home exists. 
And this is all minted immutably as an instruction on the blockchain to anyone who ever holds that token. And the blockchain, my crypto wallet, is attached to that token in the, in the smart contract. Um, so I transfer the token to you. Um, and my crypto wallet is in the smart contract and, it, and, it, and the smart contract says I'm entitled to this residual. So every time that token trades, the, con the blockchain itself sends me my portion of the proceeds. It sends me my one to 2%. So I don't have to chase the buyer. I don't have to chase the next buyer. A hundred years from now, that buyer is also going to be, you know, made to pay that, uh, that commission to me by the blockchain. Um, it's going to take the money from the transaction when they purchase the home and automatically send me my one to 2%, um, just like an escrow. And you're going to eliminate the need for an escrow. You're going to eliminate the need for a real estate agent. You're going to eliminate the need for title insurance because title will be visible on the blockchain. All the information relating to the title will be visible on the blockchain. And so you'll know that I'm conveying marketable title. You'll know that I'm the true owner of the, of the property. You'll know that there are no liens or encumbrances on the property without a title search, without a uh, real estate agent, without a bank, without a broker. So you'll eliminate all these intermediaries. Well, that is a very, very powerful economic tool that's a new tool. And that is by no means a fad. So my cousin is wrong about that. It is not a speculative bubble in a fad. It is, it is not a fad. Now, it is a speculative bubble because the prices for these art NFTs are, have gone through the roof. Some uh, Medikovin, a guy named Medikovin, who's got a fascinating story. He was a penniless uh, 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 kid in India. Uh, who couldn't even afford a computer, used to use a thumb drive to work on his friend's computer because he didn't own one, um, ultimately uh, uh, discovered Bitcoin in 2010 when it was eight cents a piece and started buying it and became a Bitcoin billionaire. And uh, he turned around and he bought a piece of digital art uh, by an artist named Beeple. Um, that sold at Christie's auction in 2020 for $69 million, the same month that a, an original Van Gogh sold for $15 million. Um, so that's arguably a speculative bubble because that's an amazingly high price to pay for a digital work of art when a Van Gogh and, and a masterpiece uh, of, you know, that's over 100 years old is selling for um, a fraction of that. Yeah. So... Um, it is it is arguably true that that NFTs are a speculative bubble and they and they're very volatile uh, just like crypto the market is very volatile it goes up and down very radically it's an unregulated market that will soon to become become more regulated um, so there's a lot of speculation it is like the wild wild west um, but NFTs are here to stay and now not all NFTs are good uh, some digital art uh, will always be worthless and some digital art uh, will hold its value uh, for generations. Um, you know, and it's like the stock market. You have to, you know, uh, pick the right product or, um, or if you're buying a commodity, if you're buying a Ferrari, you know, why are you buying the Ferrari? Um, because you... You love, you love the look, you love the utility, you love the way it drives. Well, NFTs um, are more than just art. 
They can be, um, they can have utility. They can entitle the bearer based on the smart contract. They, you can do whatever you want with them. So I could sell you a NFT that uh, in the contract, it says the bearer of this NFT is entitled to, uh, you know, a one day counseling session with me which means that you know you can spend the day with me and we could sit down and we could talk about your business and you know instead of paying me a thousand dollars an hour like I normally charge other you know clients you uh, you could uh, buy this NFT and it would entitle you to a full day of consulting um, so this is you know this is the utility of NFTs it could be it could entitle you to an experience uh, by buying the NFT, you might be able to go to a Raiders football game, or you might be able to go to an escape room, or you might be able to go on a trip to China, um, you know, whatever the smart contract provides. So this is a, I analogize uh, blockchain and NFTs, if you will, to the railroads in the mid to late 1800s. So in 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 the mid to eight, late 1800s, you had the... The telephone and the telegraph, which were mediums of communication and information discovery, and that's much like the internet today. The internet is a means of communication. We use email to communicate, and it's a means of information discovery. We go on Google and we search to discover information. Uh, that's analogous to me to the telephone and telegraph of the, of the 1800s. The railroad was a transactional engine. Um, you would, you know, buy and sell goods and ship commodities over the railroad. Um, well, blockchain is like the railroad. Blockchain is this transactional engine. And NFTs are like the railroad cars that sit upon the blockchain. And you can put whatever you want in those railroad cars. You can put a digital piece of art, or you could put a warehouse full of satellites, or you could put your home, or you could put a car. Um, or you could put, you know, uh, an invitation to dinner with yourself. So um, this is what NFTs are all about. I think it's a very fascinating area. Um, I think it's a very uh, future trending area. And um, the beauty of it is, is that it's, it's, in, it's in its infancy. And, um, you know, so you look at trading cards when they were in their infancy, um, back in the 1850s, trading cards were invented. Um, they were uh, a, a simple uh, um, illustration card that was um, attached to a cigarette packet. A Lucky Strike or Chesterfield pack of cigarettes uh, wrapped in cellophane would have the card in, in the cellophane. And when you bought the cigarettes, you would get the card. Well, today, a Honus Wagner uh, card that would have been sold in a cellophane-wrapped cigarette pack um, or given away for free in that pack um, is worth, you know, a fortune. And, um, you know, especially if it's in very good condition, condition or mint condition. A Mickey Mantle card, which is a later iteration from the 1950s, a Mickey Mantle card just sold for $12 million. So... Um, Topps trading cards popularized the um, the trading card industry, and they didn't come around until the 1950s. So 1850s is uh, 100 years earlier, um, and that was the beginning of the movement. And then 100 years later, you had an explosion of the movement in Topps trading cards. Well, today, 
is like the early uh, beginning of trading cards for NFTs. You, you are literally at the very beginning of the movement. And so um, I believe that things that are created today, um, all things being equal, things that are created today will have greater value because they are at the, at the inception of the NFT movement, just like a Honus Wagner card in the 1800s. Um, but not all trading, not all NFTs uh, that are created today will have value. If you look at uh, automobiles, for example, uh, when the automobile first came out, there were 1,800 different automobile manufacturers. 1,800 companies were set up to make automobiles. Today, only three of those companies exist, Chrysler, Ford, and GM. So all these other companies went by the wayside. The same thing will happen with NFTs. The same thing will happen with cryptocurrency. There are 19,000 different cryptocurrencies today. Um, Ten years from now, most of those will be gone. Um, only a handful will survive, but the handful that will survive will be the Amazons and the Apples and the Coca-Colas of the next, you know, decade or, or, or more. They will be the, uh, the, um, the main players and they will become more valuable, you know, whether that's Bitcoin or whether that's Ethereum or whether it's Polkadot or Solana or Cardano or something new that hasn't yet been created um, is something that uh, people that are following the space are trying to figure out. And yeah. so, um, you know, that's the opportunity. These, are these, these represent tremendous opportunities for people. But it's not just, you know, buy anything and get rich. It, you know, buy anything and, and you'll get poor. Buy the right thing and you can get rich. And so um, it's an area that's worth studying. It's an area that's worth knowing about. It's an area that's worth being involved in. When you become involved in something like this, you become part of the information flow. You tap into the information flow. And that's where you want to be. You want to be in the information flow. So let me give you an example. In 1998, there were, uh, uh, in the dot-com era, uh, the headline in the Daily Mail was, um, is the internet a fad, right? So just like my cousin thinks that NFTs are a fad, back in 1998, there were people that were saying, is the internet a fad? Hmm. And, um, so uh, in, in 1998, they came out with, um, with um, domains. Uh, the Internet, uh, the uh, uh, ICANN, uh, the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers uh, was established by a guy named John Postal and uh, he came out with these domain names. Well, in 1998, if you had known about domain names and you had been in the information flow, you could have bought pets.com and turned around and sold it for a million dollars. You could have bought some of the great domain names that existed cars.com, news.com, realestate.com. Those were all gone by 1999. So one year later, all the great names were gone. So you would have had to have been in the information flow in 1998 to take advantage of it. Metacoven, who bought the Beeple for 69 million, he was in the information flow in 2010 when Bitcoin was only 8 cents, which allowed him to capitalize on that and buy it for 8 cents. In 2015, Ethereum was only eight to 10 cents. If you were in the information flow in 2015, you could have made a fortune. 
Today, I believe it's NFTs. And so I've put myself in the information flow. Yes, yes. And you are going to have, people are going to have to check out your website because I know there's information there um, about the specific things that you're doing with NFTs, which I think is pretty fantastic. Do you want to just remind us, and it'll be in the show notes as well, what your website is so people could see your books as well as the NFTs? Yes, yes. Let me uh, let me put my charger in because my battery on my computer is running low. Hold on. Oh, no, we don't want that. Yeah. Okay, hold on. Sorry for the interruption. Done. Okay, so there's a couple of websites. If you can get a pen and paper, you should write these down. Um, number one, you can go to my main website, which is georgejchanos.com. And pretty much everything is there. Links to all the other sites are, are pretty much there. GeorgeJChanos.com. And when you post this, you can give the correct spelling. Um, but go there. Um, you can go to MillennialSamurai.com or link from my main website to MillennialSamurai.com, which will allow you to download the entire book for free. Um, and then you can also go to PeopleRain, PeopleRain, R-E-I-G-N, Dot com, which is my NFT uh, venture and my NFT website, peoplerain.com. And uh, we're, we're now minting and posting, we're creating NFTs that I think are going to be, I'm trying to create things that will stand the test of time. I'm trying to create things. So when Metacoven bought the Beeple, they asked him, what are you going to do with the Beeple? And he said, it's going to go into a digital museum in a metaverse that I'm building. And so my thought was, well, what else is going to go into that digital museum? Can I create something that will go into that digital museum? And so that became, that became my, my plan, was to try to create things that would go into the digital museums in the metaverses of the future. So that's what I'm trying to create. Now, I've, uh, my first, uh, uh, m most recently, I've just released a, uh, uh, a series of uh, bills. They're called Moon Money. And they feature Elon Musk. There are eight different bills. So there's Elon Musk, there's uh, Jeff Bezos, there's Mark Zuckerberg, there's um, uh, Vladimir Putin, there's uh, Chairman Xi of China, um, there is Andy Warhol. Um, so all of these different bills contain binary and hex code. And when you translate the binary and hex code, which you can go online, you can, you can Google, you know, hex translator uh, to text or hex to text translator, and it'll give you a free translator. You can put in the code, you can translate it, it'll tell you what the code means, and the code will be translated to text. So on these bills, there's all this code, and the code is translatable into text, and when you translate it, you find uh, these messages. And these messages, um, number one, uh, are newsworthy uh, pieces of information that relate to the people featured. So, for example, Donald Trump. On his bill, all of the things that Donald Trump said, many, many of the things that Donald Trump said when he was president, um, I've taken those quotes line by line, verbatim, I've transferred them into code, and I've put that code on the Donald Trump bill. So that code now is, is, that bill is now minted immutably on the blockchain in perpetuity. It will be there forever. And the things that he said that are on that bill will be there forever. 
So, you know, why are all these people coming from these shithole countries? Or you can grab them by the pussy or whatever he said. There's lots of things. (laughs) It's all all there. It's on the bill. Now, these bills have all uh, already sold out on on Foundation. We are the number one trending NFT today on Foundation. Um, Foundation is a platform for NFTs and it's, it's... it's high quality NFTs. It's more, you know, higher end art. Um, and our bills right now, our Elon Musk bill and our Donald Trump bill are the number one and number two trending NFTs on foundation. And so these are little pieces of history that I think will, you know, have the potential to become something in the future. A hundred years from now, people will still be talking about Donald Trump but they will not have lived through him. They will not have experienced him. Mm. You and I did live through him. We are living through him. We are witnesses to the real life phenomenon, you know, of this man. And yeah. so we are, we are able to bear witness. Um, and, and, and that witnessing and that documentation and that news, that, that historical, um, you know, formulation of something that is then created into a piece of art and minted forever on the blockchain that can be traded by future generations and that can give insight from somebody who actually lived in 2022, mm-hmm. that may be something that people care about in 3022, you right. know? Yeah. And so, and, 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 wow. yeah, so that, that's what I'm doing. That's, yeah. that's the type of stuff that I'm doing. That is no small feat. <laughs> when you say you do some complex things, you know, you're not you're not talking about um, the kind of thing that, you know, you get done in a day's time. It really is a lot of intricate things. And I, I think people will continue to find so much value and fascination in following your work through your websites. Um, and if there's, you know, I'll, I'll make sure that if there's any other links on there, I include that in the, um, in the show notes. But I do, before I let you go, have two final questions that I like sure. closing questions that I want to ask you. And the first one is um, around self-limiting beliefs. And yes. what, what self-limiting belief, if any, have you personally had to overcome in your life? Well, well, I've been fortunate in that um, I have had, um, I have, I, I've just, I've lived a, a pretty blessed life. And so even at a, at a very early age, I mean, this will give you some insight. When I was uh, six years old, um, it came over the radio that uh, JFK had been assassinated. I was driving in the car with my mom. And she pulled the car to the side of the road and started crying. And I'm alone in the car with my mom. And, uh, and I, you know, I see this and I'm struck by it. And we go back to our little apartment and um, we, she turns on the television and the news, everyone in the world is talking about this fallen hero. And there's this international outpouring of grief for this fallen hero. And at six years old, I decide I want to be that man. I want to be president. And so I kind of patterned my life along those lines for many years until I got into politics and found how horrible it was and felt that I did not want it to be part of my life. But, um, but before that, I did. And, and so from six years old, I, I had a, a very healthy belief in myself. And maybe part of that 
was the divorce of my parents when I was one and traveling and shuttling around the country. I was, you know, uh, transferring in, in major airports around the country when I was very, very young. Um, I was doing it, you know, with just the help of a stewardess by the time I was eight and, um, you know, alone. So um, I grew up pretty quickly and uh, I developed a self-confidence very quickly. Um, but, you know, limiting beliefs, so I haven't had a lot of limiting beliefs. Um, I really haven't. Um, anything that I've wanted to do, I've gone ahead and tried to do. And, you know, I, I, uh, I wanted to win the World Series of Poker. And so I, you know, I've played in the World Series of Poker three times. Um, I haven't won, um, but I have played in some other tournaments. I've final tabled in a couple of tournaments. I don't play often enough to uh, have much success at it, especially during COVID. Um, but, uh, you know, playing in three World Series and, and final tabling a couple of tournaments at the Bellagio and, and, and the win isn't bad. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I, uh, I um, um, and I'll play with anyone, you know. Um, yeah. And so uh, I'm, I'm, I, I'm not afraid to, to try things. There's a good lesson on limiting beliefs from Oprah Winfrey. She was interviewed by a uh, Stanford University graduate student, asked her, um, how did she, uh, what did she learn from the failures of her philanthropic uh, investments in Africa? So she had built a, good, a girls' school, she had uh, built a library, and they were not as successful as she had hoped. And uh, the graduate student was asking, what did she learn from that? And she said, I learned that in order to succeed, you first have to believe in your ability to succeed. You have to have a sense of hopefulness and aspiration. Without that, a book is like a piece of firewood. It may as well be a piece of firewood. If you don't think it can help you, if you don't think it can change your life, if you don't think that there's value in reading it, then maybe there's value in, in burning it to create warmth, right? So unless you understand the value of knowledge, unless you understand the value of learning, unless you believe and have a sense of hopefulness and aspiration that your life can be different, which it can, trust me, any, any life can be different, um, but it begins with belief. This is why every book that I sign I sign with the word believe. So every book that I've signed on Millennial Samurai has had the word believe very largely written on, on above the signature. And because belief is so critical, it's so essential. If you've lost that belief, if you don't have that sense of aspiration and hopefulness, then you're not going to succeed. You have to get that back. That is the first step. You have to believe in yourself, and, and there's good reason to believe in yourself. No matter how difficult things are um, for you, trust me, it's, it's, it's more difficult for others. I was on the phone last night with a guy who uh, you know, uh, was a gangbanger in, in L.A. and grew up on the street corners, you know, flashing gang signs. And uh, his, uh, his, his older brother uh, got killed in, in gang violence and his younger brother just committed suicide. And, you know, I mean, talk about a hard life, right? Uh, talk about losing a sense of hopefulness and aspirations. You've got two brothers and now they're both dead. 
and and he's talking to me about you know not having the money to bury his his brother who has recently committed suicide and um, he's talking about burying him, exhuming the body of the other brother and burying him with him uh, because they can't afford another, you know, funeral. Um, I mean, that's difficulty. And then he's got parents, elderly parents, and, you know, uh, he doesn't want this to be their responsibility because, you know, they shouldn't have a child dying before they die. And he doesn't want them having to deal with it. So he's taking on this burden. And he's got enough burdens of his own. He's got enough difficulty keeping the lights on and paying the rent. And now he's worried about his parents and he's worried about, you know, his siblings passing away. And he's worried about the children that they left behind. You know, this creates a sense of hopeful, hopelessness and, and, and frustration um, and, uh, you know, a lack of aspiration. And so... You know, I explained to him, and, and what I would say to, to the audience, anybody else who's dealing with difficulty, is that there is no upside in allowing the negative things that impact your life to continue to harm you, okay? It's, it's like Buddha said, you, you know, the first arrow is you can't prevent the first arrow that strikes you. But the second arrow, the arrow that you inflict on yourself is optional. The arrow that, that you inflict on yourself by becoming, you know, overwhelmed by grief, by becoming preoccupied with the past, by being, um, by losing hope because of the tragedies and the difficulties that have befallen you. Instead, you have to look at these things differently. You have to find it's a matter of perspective. It's the way that you choose to look at things. We don't, we don't have a choice over the things that happen to us in life. Many things we don't have a choice over, but we always have a choice. We always have a choice about how we think about those things that did happen. We can choose to think of them one way that helps our life get back on track, or we can choose to think of them in another way that causes us causes us to go off the rails. This is a choice. You're making a choice in the way that you're thinking about the things that have happened to you. I choose to think about any adversity and I have had adversity. You know, it doesn't seem like I've had adversity, but I've had adversity. If you, if you almost die from a heart attack, you've had adversity. Okay. And there are other things. I've had failures in business. I've had other things that have happened. Um, uh, I've lost loved ones. Um, you know, these are adversities. So, so how do you think about them? I think about adversities. Whenever an adversity befalls me, I immediately, as quickly as I can, I start to look at what is the possible benefit of this adversity. How can I use this adversity to my advantage? What is this adversity trying to teach me? What can I learn from this? How can I use this to make me stronger? How can I use this to make my life better? Okay, that's how I approach adversity. That's my mindset. And that mindset means that when good things happen to me, it's all good. And when bad things happen to me, I find the good out of them. I turn them into good. I turn a heart attack into a new calling of writing books and becoming an author and becoming a speaker. 
I transform that adversity into an opportunity. And, and that's what people need to do. I love that. And you, you, be, you know, in everything you've said, you answered my final question, which was around your advice, which you've given so eloquently. So I just, I want to thank you for taking so much time to share your wisdom and point us in the direction of where we can get more information. So once again, georgejchanos.com, I think is the primary place that I'll include Millennial Samurai link, as well as People Rain link in the show notes. But George, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom with us today. Well, thank you, Des. I really appreciate it. Um, it's great meeting you. Great to know that you're in Las Vegas. Yeah. Uh, very much appreciate your having me on and helping me help create awareness and, and uplift some other people's lives. Absolutely. Thank you so much.